Section 8 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Stevenson. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920 by G. K. Chesterton. Section 8. The Consistency of Mr. Snowden, by G. K. Chesterton. Many will look at dusty old folios in a library who would not look at dusty old files in a newspaper office, and so the history that is really most recent seems to be most remote. The papers of yesterday have faded more completely than the snows of yesteryear, for nobody has written even a ballade about them, Every detached critic of public affairs must have noticed that there is a sort of neglected interregnum of politics, of which few, especially of the rising generation, realize anything at all. It is just too new to be history, and just too old to be news. This peculiarity of politics is, of course, a convenience for politicians. For a politician with a future means a politician with a forgotten past. But I have been surprised to notice in the course of turning over the newspapers how completely it generally is forgotten. It is needless to say that the journalists do not always tell the truth about the politicians. What surprises me is that so very often, it would seem, they do not even know the truth about them. But this becomes much more comprehensible when we realize how very short is the period of the past about which they do profess to know. It is almost as if Fleet Street were entirely inhabited by infants in arms, though I do not know whose arms, and as if the really experienced veterans of the press were about three years old. For instance, I saw in one of the best of the evening papers the other day the statement that a certain constituency had a long memory. The prehistoric persistence of its memory appeared to consist in the fact that it has not forgotten the Great War with Germany. That traditional event, lost in the mists of antiquity, was remembered in this particular case to the disadvantage, I am happy to say, of Mr. Philip Snowden. Other critics and nations may have grown up in ignorance of it, but this one tenacious tribe still remembers that Mr. Snowden was not exactly a paladin of patriotism in that dim and distant crusade. Now I have no doubt that the voters in this constituency do indeed realize that, during the war, Mr. Snowden did not support the government. What they possibly do not realize is that the government did support Mr. Snowden. While Mr. Snowden was preaching a pacifist panic in the crisis of battle, Mr. George and the politicians allowed him an official seat on the Liquor Control Board, and gave him the power to dilute, dole out, or filch away the beer of a people that was giving its blood. That is one example of the sort of enormous fact, of very recent date, which the journalists apparently do not know, and certainly do not tell. Possibly they do not tell it, because it reflects even more on a man like Mr. George than on a man like Mr. Snowden. But that is not the example with which I am immediately concerned here, what seems to me still more remarkable is this. The evening paper in question was concerned to point out that some of those whom it vaguely calls extremists in labor politics, they might be extreme Muslims or extreme Mormons for all the value of the description, feel a link with Mr. Snowden because of his anti-national notions about the ethics of arms. But it added, very truly, that they are not altogether at one with him in some other revolutionary proposals. The paper suggested that Mr. Snowden was, from the extremist point of view, shaky about direct action, 
and it added, almost as if with hesitation, that Mr. Snowden seems on one occasion to have discouraged a particular strike. Now I suppose that journalists may be excused for not having taken note of the principles of a politician, because a politician so seldom has any principles. But to do Mr. Snowden justice, if there is one principle irrevocably riveted to his personality, if there is one principle he has made quite plain and maintained for a long period, it is the principle of his absolute abomination of strikes. He has incessantly written against strikes, spoken against strikes, worked and maneuvered against strikes, against all strikes, against any strike, against the very principle and nature of any strike. He has not done this in abrupt panic, or belated reaction over some exceptional example. It is due to his consistency to say that he did it from the very beginning of his political career, and chiefly in the period of the great strikes before the war. Not knowing that Mr. Snowden is against strikes is like not knowing that Carson is against home rule, or that Mr. Harold Cox is against socialism. He is against strikes as he is against beer. He is against strikes as he is against soldiers, and for the same reason. Save in that one secluded village, to which the paper referred, where totters and daughters in senile decay, the oldest inhabitant who remembers the advance on the Somme, and the retreat from St. Quentin, it were vain indeed to look for anybody who remembers the labor controversies before the war. But as a fact, the late editor of the New Witness, whose memory is not unconnected with the tragedy of the war, enjoyed himself very much in the comedy of the controversy. And I remember him reviewing, in a very vigorous fashion, a sort of small book or pamphlet which Mr. Snowden wrote with the sole object of stopping strikes. In that review, my brother pointed out that Mr. Snowden was opposed to all strikes, exactly as he was opposed to wars, because he did not feel that manhood and moral dignity demand renunciation and defiance, at a certain point of oppression, whatever the risk, or even the result may be. As he said, such defiance may end in defeat, but it is sometimes a duty to risk defeat instead of disgrace. But the case is even more curious than this. Not only is this anti-strike spirit the true sense in which Mr. Snowden is a pacifist, it is also the equally true sense in which he is a pro-German. He disliked fighting Prussia, partly because he disliked fighting anybody, but he also disliked fighting Prussia simply because he liked Prussia. His gentle soul would have been much more torn with temptation if there had been a chance of invading France. Sirens far sweeter, even if equally sinful, would have lured his soul to the prospect of oppressing Poland. And here again he is wholly consistent. For instance, to recur once more to old, unhappy, far-off things and battles long ago, Mr. Snowden, in the middle of the war, urged it as an objection to France recovering her property of Alsace that the German labor legislation was more advanced than the French. This means, of course, that the German labor legislation is more advanced in the direction of forced labor. It is not at all hard to see what he means by commending all that type of culture and humane government which we associate with the name of Zabern. A crippled cobbler was wantonly cut down with a saber in that town, but Mr. Snowden thinks that such a cobbler has his compensations, even if he got no compensation. He is covered with a complex network of state regulations, not only designed to prevent the cobbler going beyond his last, but to prevent him from going the length of his last, from treating it as his own last at all. Thus, such a regulation takes care of a part of the cobbler's own wages for him. Money that other people have paid him to mend their shoes, and forcibly allots it to one particular purpose, whether he likes it or not. He must not spend it on any individual notion or any immediate need. If the cobbler is of one way of thinking, he must not spend it on putting up candles to St. Crispin, the patron saint of cobblers. 
if he is of the other way of thinking he must not spend it on buying by installments the lives of atheistic cobblers that solid and handsome series published by the rationalist press association least of all of course must he pay it into the funds of the voluntary organization of the guild of cobblers for the purpose of a collective bargain or a strike that portion of his own hard-earned money is forcibly set aside for the day on which he shall be afflicted with the disease of cobbler's collarbone which no less a person than Professor Smuts has proved to be the inevitable fate of 1.25 cobblers out of every 99.05 of the members of that trade. This is the sort of thing that is meant by having the protection of advanced labor legislation. And Mr. Snowden feels that, for a cobbler so protected, being cut about with a saber is, after all, only a minor inconvenience, and almost a mystical form of paternal government. For, after all, there is little difference between the medical and the military coercion, if both are done by the sacred authority of the state. To be hacked with a surgeon's knife against your will, and to be hacked with a soldier's sword against your will, are both things that may be theoretically for your own good, or for the good of the social system to which you belong. This bureaucratic argument is quite consistent, and naturally anyone who approves of it will disapprove of the strike. A strike is a spontaneous and unofficial organization from below, based on the idea that the labor of men is voluntary. Of course, it is possible that Mr. Snowden has since altered his mind, and seeing that the strike can sometimes be used against patriotism, has consented to allow it to be used even against plutocracy. In that case, he has lost his last link of logic, and become a politician indeed. End of section 8. Recording by Aaron Stevenson.